0: Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. My name's Brad. And I'm Sarah. Typically, we discuss Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes, but today we're going to do something just a little bit different. Last night, on July 26th, we hosted a lecture at Carnton, which featured guest speakers Pastor Hewitt Sawyers and Tennessee state historian Dr. Carol Van West in a discussion entitled The Past and Future of Our Civil War. And this was a part of our ongoing Battle of Franklin Trust lecture series. These lectures are a way for us to engage with the public through open dialogue and give us a perspective on things that, you know, we may not have thought of before. Sarah and I will be back on Tuesday with our regularly scheduled episodes. But if you would like to support the podcast and maybe add some great books to your collection, head over to our website at store.boft.org. And if you use the coupon code PODCAST18, So podcast 18, all one word, you can receive 10% off your order at checkout. If you're interested in today's lecture, we highly recommend the book Race and Reunion by historian David Blight. It's subtitled The Civil War in American Memory, and it discusses how the nation has struggled with the war and what it accomplished. So once again, our website is store.boft.org, and the coupon code is podcast18. Thank you so much for listening, and now we're going to throw it back to last night's lecture. Enjoy. Well, welcome, everyone. I want to
1: thank you for coming out to um, the last of our three scheduled um, talks, which we style a lecture series. Um, my name is Eric Jacobs, and I'm the CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust. I'm going to um, introduce our speakers in just a few moments, but I thought I'd give everyone a little bit of context on... Um, why we're having this talk at this time, um, I think that if you have, um, if you're a student of history, if you're a student of the Civil War, if you're interested um, in what has been going on over the last few years, really, related to the Civil War, I think it's, I think it's um, hard to ignore the fact that there has been a sea shift of some sorts. Um, there have certainly been a lot of recent controversies about the Confederate flag although I would argue that the Confederate flag has long been controversial but of course recent um, issues with Confederate monuments have been at the forefront and here um, at a historic site um, we have largely been immune um, to really anything overtly negative I've always um, I've told the staff I've told the board, I've told anyone who's willing to listen that I think in a place like this context, uh, matters And there's always context. This is where people expect to be able to ask questions and have an open dialogue, and they expect to see certain symbols. I think we're, we're dealing with a reckoning, if you will, about our war and what symbols and what words mean. And so in the aftermath of uh, recent events, particularly Charlottesville, I had the opportunity to meet one of our speakers, Hewitt Sawyers, um, who has for, since what, 1983, is that right? Uh, preached at West Harpeth Baptist Church, just down Highway 31, um, south, just south of the Harrison House, and uh, today Harrison, uh, Winstead Elementary. Um, so Hewitt and I have forged a, a friendship over the over the past, really I guess about a year, and um, for a long time, I've been friends and, and uh, acquaintances with Dr. Uh, Van West, who has uh, taught at MTSU for many years. Has been a great supporter of everything we've done in Franklin through the um, to the Tennessee Heritage area. And um, he's now for how many years has it been since you were appointed state historian? Three, four, five years. 13. So five years. Okay. Um, These two men, who I respect a great deal, come um, here tonight with very different perspectives. One is a very scholarly perspective. Um, One um, is a very personal, uh, is a very social, and very, I think, religious perspective. And obviously, there's a bit of a difference in age, and there's, frankly, a difference in race. These are the issues we've grappled with, I think, related to our war for the better part of a century and a half. What does it all mean? And more than anything, the purpose of this last talk for this year is that just about everything related to the Civil War, except things like dates and casualties and names, mean different things to different people. And not everything about our war is across the spectrum just a static thing. It all is very different to a wide variety of people, starting with those who fought the war and those who survived it. And then today, all of us who remain very much impacted by the events of not just 150 years ago, but I think and I'm, and I'm hoping that one of the stories we'll hear tonight is how people not that long ago in recent history were impacted by the legacy um, of our war. So with that... I um, am going to ask one simple question, well, at least I think it's simple, and then I'm going to turn the microphone over to Hewitt and to Van, and they're going to have a dialogue really between themselves, but talking to you. We're going to um, run until about 6.45 and 6.50 with the two of them, and then we'll open up the floor. We'll take four or five or six questions. We do need to finish by seven, or just a few minutes after. I know all of you probably have things to do beyond here. Van has to be in Atlanta tomorrow. Um, I have to be back here tomorrow. I'm not sure what Hewitt's plans are, but that's sort, of the, uh, that's sort of the schedule for tonight. So what I'm going to ask is really kind of a two twofold or threefold kind of question. What does the war and its legacy mean to each of you? And from there, um, I'm going to let you run with the show. So, who wants to go first? I defer to the (laughs) (laughs) County. That seems like
2: uh, the scholar uh, handed it over to the religious guy. (laughs) Well, I would like to say that the the war has. left a huge legacy I think to someone in my status because the war having been fought has left an indelible imprint particularly upon persons of color. When I talk with someone about the war typically they will say it's just something of history. It was fought. It was a war that was a war between the states. Not much else. It was just a war. But when I look at it, it was a war about slavery. And that slavery actually caused a real hard thing for people of color. Yes, the slaves were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, but the Emancipation Proclamation did not free the minds of people because things were put in the minds of people that last even to now, to this present day. And some people still have the legacy of what came through slavery. And some people still don't understand it now, why some people just don't seem to be able to help themselves. And I think it's a legacy of slavery so when you talk about the war the war still has its problems even today so that's what i would say the war means to people of color even from then unto now and even some of the things that we see as historical monuments and things like that raise different issues in the lives of some people than what other people see when they say it's just history. Ben, I'm gonna let you go.
3: Well. You know, the, the question about the legacy of the war, I've had the advantage of knowing that this question was always going to come to me uh, when I agreed to be the co-chair of the state sesquicentennial commission back now 10 years ago. And what is, so I thought about that. And one of the things I'm most proud about that we've been able to accomplish in Tennessee in this decade, because there's a whole lot of good things that have happened. But this is one of the best because it reaches one of the biggest audiences we get and it will be there for 20 years at least and those are the exhibits if you've ever stopped to look at any of them at the welcome centers in Tennessee every welcome center has one and it was done from a tourism standpoint to support the Civil War trails program okay that and that's very good but how do you concisely say what the war meant, the legacy of the war, to visitors who are really just there to, uh, you know, go to the facilities real quick, and maybe they'll take a quick look at this exhibit. So when I decided that the war really ended meaning two things, one was pretty clear, reunification, and I think that's crucial. The United States does not become the leader of the free world without the Civil War and reunification. And then the second part is redefinition of citizenship. And that's been the sticky wicket. You know, the 14th Amendment said equal protection of the laws. is That was only litigated for the next 100 years. Uh, today I'm working on a project down in Notosauga, Alabama. This is in Macon County, Alabama. And it's a fascinating community. And this school is fascinating because it was really sort of the school that tipped the scales for what they were trying to do in Alabama as far as desegregation, where actually a community school said, you know, we're okay being black and whites in this same school. We don't want a state law that says we have to go to a private academy. We want to keep what we have together, and they start fighting back. So you know, they were finally grappling with what that equal protection clause meant. One hundred years later, these are events of nineteen sixty-four, and because they wouldn't go along, of course, what did they do? They blew up the school. You know, you know, it's like no, you will uh, go along. So I mean, it's a difficult. That's been the difficult question. What does the equal protection mean? And then, who is a citizen? I always think we're getting ready in Tennessee and across the nation, but particularly in our state, to celebrate the woman's suffrage (coughs) amendment because Tennessee was the last state and the necessary last state to ratify it. I don't think that happens without the 15th Amendment giving African-American men the right to vote. Because then, you're talking about being a spur under the saddle. You had a lot of white women saying, hey, what kind of world is this that we still don't have the right to vote? So again, the legacy of the Civil War, I think, is really tied up in citizenship, guys, and what we think citizenship means in the past and what we think it means today. So I know you grew up, and we both grew up in this region. I grew up in Murfreesboro, so just across the way. Although I will let you guys in Franklin know there isn't a wall between Murfreesboro and Franklin. <laughs> you can actually go there. Uh, Eight forty doesn't have a barrier up there. Uh, but you know, we grew up in similar sort of sized towns back then when we were. So I wanted to explore a little bit about, and we're about the same age. We grew up when it was still a segregated South, and we went through that change. So what was your experiences like?
2: When I lived, uh, grew up uh, about a good strong rock throw from an elementary and high school, and it never dawned on me because i thought that uh, it wasn't anything wrong with me not going to the elementary and high school at college grove i grew up at college grove uh, i usually uh, with a uh, tongue-in-cheek say i was grew up downtown college grove yeah right downtown college grove but i i had to get up and catch the bus at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to Franklin, to high school. Uh, Claiborne Hughes Nursing Home was the high school that I went to there, Natchez High. But the, it never bothered me at the time because uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was not any problems with any of my neighbors or anything like that. And most of the neighbors where I grew up were white. So there was not any problems. It was a farm. We all helped each other and what have you. So I didn't know any problem with racism as such. Maxwell's Drugstore in College Grove, I knew I wasn't supposed to sit at the counter, but I didn't know why. But... Everything else was just as it was. We talked and just everything was fine. So I didn't have any legacy of racism or anything uh, at that time as I was growing up. So that wasn't a problem. What I did see in terms of a problem when I came to Franklin. Now we came, when you lived in the country, you came to town every week, whether you needed to or not. So we would come to Franklin and the courthouse, the historical courthouse on the square, now they had uh, white water fountains and colored water fountains. The colored water fountain was on the right-hand side as you went in the door. The white was on the left. They had colored bathrooms on the right and the white on the left. And so I knew you were not supposed to go to that other water fountain. Never didn't know why. I was a kid, didn't know why, just know you couldn't do it. Those kind of things went on. And I used to. I, another thing that was interesting too. Growing up, all of the little white kids, my dad called them Mr. So and So or Miss So and So, and they called my dad by his first name. And I asked my dad once. I said, Dad, why do you call them Mr. So and So or Miss So and So, and they call you by your first name? He says, son, uh, don't worry about it. I said, no, dad, I don't know why. And he says, well, you'll understand it later. And he never would tell me, but that's just the way it was. And so when I uh, got grown, I came back and I asked him again. And he says, son, there were just some things you had to do to get along. That was some of the legacy that I was talking about as you went along, as you were growing up. But quite frankly, I never knew what segregation was in its fullest sense. I never had anybody call me the N-word. I never had anybody treat me badly or anything like that. Personally, I never had that. Now, when I went to college, there were some kids from the western portion of the state. I went to TSU. If you said something about a white guy to them, they would go into hysteria. I mean literally into hysteria they had gone into that type of thing and they were just um oh yeah but i never went through that I, I mean i guess i was blessed in that situation but i just wanted to share some of that with you now i did in franklin when the uh they were talking about restoring theater downtown uh, i really wasn't too interested in doing it because When I was there, I had to go upstairs in the theater to to watch a movie, because all colored had to go upstairs. Everybody else went in on on the bottom floor. Uh, I never did understand why that had to be, but then after I thought about it, the upstairs seats were the better seats anyway. (laughs) But, but, But That's kind of the way it went, but you know, I really didn't understand it as a kid why that's the way it was. I shared at Winston Elementary School. My grandson was going to school there. They had grandparents to come and share some of the things that went on when I was in school, and as compared to them being in school, and some parents of their kids these were fifth graders and parents had moved here from up noah and i was sharing some of the, these things with them and literally these parents came up to me and they they literally literally accused me of not telling the truth they did not believe that me living and talking to them that these things had really happened and happened in Williamson County Tennessee they didn't believe it but it's real it had happened in Williamson County
3: Tennessee well you know that's uh, of course my experience is totally opposite and it was something that started to shape my understanding of the Civil War now, you know, this will, of course, shock a lot of people in this room. But, you know, when the centennial happened, I was born in 1955, so I was six years old in 1961. And, you know, by that time, you were a little bit aware of stuff, and I started writing my first history books about the Civil War at that time. Um, my mother kept all of those, which I did not know until she passed. And she kept all of those. And then in 1962, they had a great centennial parade about the Civil War in Murfreesboro down the square. And she had pictures of me inside of the parade float. And my job was to turn the crank that turned John Hunt Morgan and Maddie Reedy around in circles as the float went down the street. So, you know, now uh, uh, you're talking about polar opposite experiences. That too is what the Middle Tennessee was like back at that time. Uh, I was in the fifth grade, this was 65, when they finally did token integration of the public schools and probably some of y'all experienced about the same time here. And, you know, even then, though, you were 10, you knew a little bit more about what character meant. I always think the two men who integrated our school, Nelson Atkins, who I have remained friends with ever since, and James Sanford, who moved from town. Don't know what's happened to James over the years. I couldn't believe how brave they were. Because here's a school of, you know, several hundred kids and these two black young men. So that started to, that really raised a question to me. What is this all about, Mom? My mother was a school teacher. And she was like, it's about equality. And again, that's where I come back to that whole legacy of the Civil War. Yeah. The war started the debate. It turned the corner for this nation about citizenship and who were what it meant to be a citizen of the United States of America. Not just of a state, but of this nation, this nation that has become so important in the world today. But it was a process to get there. This did not happen overnight. And that's where the Civil War was when the war is over, it's a horrific situation. The first time I met with some planners starting all of this Civil War ses- uh, sesquicentennial stuff here in Tennessee, oh, we want to talk to you because you're an expert. So t- tell us, but you know, don't give us that academic talk. Give us two words: what the Civil War meant. So I went, okay, let me th- can I think for a second, and then oh, okay death and destruction. That's what it meant. It was horrific. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers died. We really don't have a count on the number of civilians who died, but think for every one of those soldiers who died, how families were impacted. We know this today. We go through this when we lose any of our first responders, people in service, the impact it has not only on their family, but the sort of extended family, on their church, on their neighborhood, on their clubs. It's its terrible. Well, multiply that by numbers that is hard to imagine, and then the enemy is someone that you actually know. So I always think, no wonder. They fought the war and they ended the war. They couldn't reconcile what it all meant. And that generation that fought the war, you know, they weren't the ones putting up monuments. There were only a handful of those done in the state. Murfreesboro has the oldest. The Hazen's Brigade monument that was put up right after the Battle of Stones River. Uh, Then there was one in Union City, Tennessee in 1869, one in Bolivar in 1868. Little obelisk, more like cemetery markers, because, you know, they were really mourning the death and the loss. And then there were the national cemeteries, and then the McGavick Cemetery and the private cemeteries. There were those places. These other things come much later. And they speak to the nation trying to make sense out of what had been this horrific event. So I come back to this question of legacy and impact is that, boy, we get taught badly in history. And there's four of my former students in the audience, so they can tell you how bad I was. You can talk to them when we're done. But we do do a bad job often of teaching because we just line up dates. 1865 April, Lee surrenders, Civil War is over. You know, I don't think the Civil War was really over in reconciling these major issues until almost our generation. Almost our generation. I think in the South, you had to end segregation for true reconciliation to start to take place.
2: Let me, um, as a legacy also of the Civil War, we don't talk too much about the human tragedy of the Civil War. Families were broken up. People were human property. And as those people were sold from one place to the other, that's what has continued to have a huge impact upon what's going on in a lot of families, even today. When the family, the man is taken out of the home and the woman is sold over here and the children are, kept here and this group is this is a good group here and the man is taken and sold over there and even when slavery was abolished that system had been set up and as it began to move on down and you find that families were attempted to be reunited, it had still been kind of established that families could be easily broken, that family bonding had been seriously damaged. After Reconstruction, and families began to try to get back together again, we still had some problems because it was difficult for families to eke out livings. Sometimes the families just couldn't make it. We were still, for the most part, an agrarian society or culture. Many problems continued to come up as we moved from the agrarian culture and the mechanical culture started coming in they started moving into cities and things like this things didn't get a whole lot better jobs were hard to come by family bonding the things that they originally had didn't come back together too well and we still have some of those very same problems, particularly in the African American culture. And I think it all stems back to where it was broken up when slavery started. Tell me, Van, do you think that that Civil War has, uh, is is that a true assessment or does that uh, Civil War really have anything to do with that?
3: Well I would say that's beyond my pay grade but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take a shot at that. Okay. You know when I think deeply about what it means to be an American. And some of you know I'm shamelessly uh, patriotic and uh, proud of our country. And we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. But we began with the absolutely right idea of all men are created equal. That that was gonna be the basis of this new society of why we would take the risk of breaking away at that time from one of the most powerful empires in the world to create this new nation based on that. And it was a torturous route to get a constitution to where the states could work together effectively and start to build a nation. There was the compromise, the stain that was there. And that's the three-fifths clause. Oh yeah, we're going to recognize slavery. And in fact, we're going to empower the slave states that they can have greater representation than they actually deserve because they say on the one hand slaves are property but then on the other hand for population count well you can count three-fifths of them so you know that was i think a great stain upon what the nation was trying to become and the civil war erased that with the results of the war in the 13th amendment the three-fifths clause went away Um, and, of course, ironically, if the South had really sort of exercised its political power, that empowered more voters, and they could have been great, but then that's when you get all the Reconstruction politics, and it all gets very confusing real quick. So I tend to think that, you know, you can look at the the course of the nation and the Civil War finally reconcile the great stain of the founding fathers, and that was the acceptance of slavery. And they did so not because they all wanted to, but they felt this is the best way that we can unite to start to build that ideal. And this is where I think it's... We all should play a role in making sure that we're always striving for that ideal of the Declaration of Independence. It is one of the great documents in world history and of course it's done by a slave owner who had a long-term relation with a slave teenager from whom several children came forth. That's all, even Monticello will now finally talk about that. That's a reality that again we didn't want to talk about but it's true. And I'll tell you how much we have grown on some of this. Guys, a few weeks ago, I'm in Edgefield, South Carolina. Who's the famous 20th century politician from Edgefield? Strong Thurman. And there's a, a commanding statue of Thurman on their town square. He's you know clearly the most famous person ever to come from this little town. And they list his children on it. And it's been amended to list that black child that he had back in the 1930s or 40s when he was a young man. Something that didn't become known until fairly recent. So, you know, people sometimes go into this rant with me. Oh, well, people are trying to erase history. You know, I think we're still trying to get the history right. And, you know, when you see that in Edgefield, South Carolina, it sort of gave me hope that, okay, there's a lot of things I don't agree with, but this gives me hope that we can get the history right.
2: I think that's good, and I, I think that's where uh, we have to work on trying to make sure we do get it right, because that's the, that's the foundation where we need to be to make sure that it is right. Uh, I agree with that. I'm, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm certain that uh, as we move forward uh, in looking at where history can uh, be better as we go forth in the future is more things just like what you've just stated. I would like to say that as we look forward now for what's going on here in, in Williamson County. Um, I think that a lot of things that we are doing here, who would have thought that an African American preacher would have been sitting here in this kind of forum with an, a scholar of history, and look at this, Civil War history in front of an audience like this, discussing these kind of issues. And with an audience like this, and I'm looking into your faces, and you are being extraordinarily attentive to what's going on. This is what's necessary us to move forward as a people, because it's important that we be able to communicate and to understand where we are as a people, if we're going to be able to do the things that are necessary for our entire society to move forward. History is so important, and I know this is the cliché. But if we do not get history right, we are absolutely doomed to repeat the same history. So I'm, I'm at this point in saying that I believe more sessions like this are necessary for us to do so that we don't make the failures of the past. And I believe that we will move forward if we'll keep doing the same kind of things.
3: Okay, that's, uh, uh, that's very thoughtful and makes me think of what is history to begin with. As I sometimes tell audiences, you know, it is the ultimate. It is what it is. And you know, one of our problems on some of these issues is we want to pretend it's something that it wasn't. And dialogue and discussions are always good. And yes, I agree with you, this type of form, the turnout, the folks that, that you've come. Um, certainly, we could go into many different parameters and topics here, but it gets to something I've learned a lot from Tennesseans in doing this work of the Centennial, of the Civil War National Heritage Area, all of these different projects from working on the Natchez Street Historic District here in Franklin years ago, is history for Tennesseans becomes a way we get together and we learn. We learn from our mistakes. We learn of the possibilities that existed in the past and maybe the paths that weren't taken and should have been taken, but we can debate those and maybe find a new path. History is not a battlefield in Tennessee. I don't want it to become that. I want it to become part of the ways we dialogue as a group of citizens. Because again, when, with the Civil War I come back to, it's the citizenship that really matters. I think we understood slowly, slowly, as a people that we were far greater as citizens of this nation than we were as people from Murfreesboro, people from Tennessee. we That's how we have moved forth. And I think we were ordained, and I'll try to not, I'll leave the preaching to you, but I think we were ordained this role. And we either accept this role of leadership or we'll be forever damned for not doing it.
2: Let me say one other thing I I wanted to mention about um, monuments and things like that. One of the things that I think that we need to also be aware of, uh, uh, this monument that was uh, uh, in Charlottesville. Sometimes we become very, very worked up about monuments. We need to also, when we look at the Civil War, the Civil War, and I'm glad you said that Van, it is what it is. And those monuments cannot represent any more than what that war was. We need to be very careful that we do not wrap ourselves up in any more than what it was. And sometimes (laughs) we make the monuments represent more than what it can actually say. Maybe I'll preach a little bit and say we make those monuments little gods. And they're not. They're just not. So we need to be very careful about that in giving them some kind of human godless status. They're just not those. They can't represent any more than what you put in them. So uh, uh, that Charlottesville situation was an atrocious situation, never should have happened. And as we look at them, whether they're in the state capitol, whether they're on the city square, or wherever they are, we've got to respect other people's rights and opinions in in what goes on. And we need to make sure that the monuments tell the complete story. And sometimes we don't get that done. So I just uh, want to encourage you To think those kind of things through as we look at uh, those monuments and uh, and what the civil war story of the past and the future will be
3: well and I see we're getting going now that Eric's told us we need to wrap it up but that's okay because again (laughs) you know everyone's time is everyone's time is uh, Valuable. I respect everyone for just coming out. But, you know, Charlottesville just outraged me. As a citizen of the United States, it outraged me. The parading of the Nazi regalia and all of that. So my thing is, I broke with a lot of my brothers there. Rachel Finch, who's in the audience, she was with me on a panel at the University of Virginia, what, Rachel, about six weeks after that happens, something like that. And I got really torqued by the university sort of trying to, you know, well, you know, it was like the great unfortunate. No, it was awful. We we can't have this in our towns. And in the South, we're better than that. We're a whole lot better than that. So I ended up sort of... uh, Giving a sermon, which they knew they were afraid I was going to, so I was the very last speaker of the very last panel of their whole little get together, but I still had a good time because I, you know, I could, I, you know, I could have gone on forever. They didn't have anything else to do after me, but, and that's dangerous to do, you know. Uh, but so, yeah, I think that's that was a. a a thing that really made you stop and think—that we're so much stronger as United people—and again, I think we're ordained to fulfill that role. And there's always sunshine patriots out there who want to say otherwise, or who want to pretend something else, and that's fine. That's their right. They can pretend that. But you know, the way the American people have reacted told me we're good because you know what, it was a month later they came to Murfreesboro and Shebbleville, and it was, uh, you know, the basic non-event. Uh, few people showed up, a lot were there to make sure people understood we're together as a community. In Murfreesboro it led to one of the great events of all time. Preachers from different faiths, different colors, all gathered in the First Baptist Church of Murfreesboro, which was the leader of the segregation movement back in the day. And I just thought, this is how this whole community has moved forward because of this threat to what the community was. So yeah, I agree with you. We have to stay, keep our eyes on the prize, and it's not, you know, physical things, it's us together as a community, as a people, and as a nation. I always give the preacher the last word.
2: Well, I won't give the benediction, I'll just go ahead and turn it back over to Eric. But I appreciate uh, uh, you all being so kind to us and allowing us to take up your time.
1: Let's give them a round of applause. I think, I think Van was right. We were just we're just starting to get going, and this could probably go on a lot longer, I, to a point Hewitt made. Because the monument debate has been very visceral over the last really over the last probably two years, but especially the last 12 months. And of course, we have a Confederate monument right here in Franklin. Um, But I think it's a point well taken that we can make monuments more than they ever were. And we we can make them into almost human beings. But of course, they're not. And there are many things in the United States, let alone the world, that are not sacrosanct. Change is often very difficult. And one of the conversations I've had repeatedly, because it relates to a monument, is, of course, one that was removed in Memphis to Nathan Bedford Forrest. And a conversation that's often had is about, well, there's, it's grave desecration because he's buried underneath the monument. Yes, he is. But very few people who make that argument understand that that's not where he was first buried. You see, Forrest's grave was desecrated a 100 years ago when he was dug up from Elmwood Cemetery and moved to where he is now. They also dug up his wife and then erected this massive equestrian statue over the top of them. And I think the real question is, why would people dig up two human beings who had been buried for many years and then erect a statue over the top of them? I think that's the real question with that monument. And like us, not all monuments are the same. And not everyone looks at the situation the same. So I appreciate you all coming out and, um, and having the, the dialogue that I think we do need to have. That if we talk to each other um, rather than at each other, um, I think we'll make a lot more progress. So with that, I, I'd like to open it up to um, a handful of questions. Um, we'll, we'll, we have a limited amount of time, but let's start with you. Yes, sir. slavery had been abolished
3: at the writing of our Constitution, do you think other issues that divided us would have driven us to a civil war to actually should other? Or When would that have occurred? Or how would things have changed? You say the civil war divided us, but a lot of people say it melded us into you know, one country. Okay, well, the question was, if the Constitution had actually abolished slavery and, and eliminated the slave states as a what-if. Well, that's a great what-if. Uh, I think we know from the time, it, it seems that that would have been impossible. I think that that has been the great dividing point because politically, when you get into this, it was the three-fifths clause just as the nation st- continue to expand just think if you you know this aggravated the northern states to no end you know just in political power and you know we all know it can get to be very partisan and it's all sort of politics no common sense so i don't see any great dividing issues if it hadn't been for the presence of free states and slave states uh, the one thing I would go to is the, one of the chief founders again, and I sound like someone from University of Virginia. I keep on bringing him up. but um, Thomas Jefferson, when he said about the Missouri Compromise in his famous letter, it was a fire bell in the night, and he feared for the union because he knew finally the issue was joined. The issue was joined. So there's one of your founders in 1820 realizing how crucial that issue was. So that's where I think, yeah, if we had if we had moved forth as a free nation, I think that was what we were meant to do, and I think it would have been good. But I don't think in 1787 that was possible. Yes, sir.
1: So what can you tell me about the gentleman by the name? William Eliza Jr., he was from South Carolina. Have you ever heard the name? I spent some time in Carolina and supposedly
3: he was black and he was a slave owner. Oh, and that's, and there were African Americans who were slave owners. Uh, sometimes African Americans would buy slaves to set them free. I know one of my graduate students was just working on a builder in Charleston um, named Squash. He was a house builder, and that's what he did once he bought money and once he gained money, and he was able to buy his family and set them free. Except for his wife, he was never the guy who owned his wife would never sell sell him t- to that. So you do have instances like that. You do have. In uh, Louisiana, you have some African-American planners. Again, evil doesn't just reside in one, one race, it can be everywhere. And I think slavery is an evil, and some people of color fell for that evil. I know a place I have taken one of my classes to is uh, down in North Florida, it's sort of near Jacksonville where it's a big plantation that an African-American woman operated and owned slaves. So it's not unheard of. Uh, slavery was an evil that ran through the country. But I don't know about this guy. I haven't read his story yet.
1: Um, I was taught that the Civil world is economics and that um, slavery wasn't the main issue.
3: Yeah, well, I'll be glad to because the economic factor was slavery. Uh, This is something that one way that you can explore this is very interesting if you're on Ancestry.com is to go into the state records of some famous people and famous plantation owners. And, you know, it's amazing this stuff that, you know, sells at auctions, for. $75,000 $75,000 these pieces of furniture you know they'll give it a few dollars or a few pounds but then the most valuable thing they owned were their enslaved people so that was the the South lost ai don't know I'm sure someone's done the study I just don't know it hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth when slaves were set free because that was the most valuable thing that they owned So there was that economic side to the impact of slavery in the Civil War. Particularly once the inland, you know, you couldn't import slaves into this country legally after 1807, and the inland market started to really develop, and that's where Tennessee becomes a state that has some major slave trading operations in Nashville and Memphis, because. The trade was, you know, agriculture was moving into Texas and the western states because it was new land, open land.
1: If if I might, just to add one comment to this, there's actually a panel over here you you might read, and I always encourage people to read the the political documents or the speeches of the politicians, and especially the elite, what they were saying, and the words are actually shocking to our, our modern sensibilities. When you see the man vice president of the Confederacy say that our new government is founded on the accepted fact that the Negro is not equal to white man I mean, he comes right out and says it Mississippi when they secede they issue a declaration that says our uh, interest is thoroughly connected to the institution of slavery. They they even go on to say by by an imperious law of nature, only the Negro can bear exposure to the tropical sun. I mean, if nothing else, they're honest. But the economics, commodity production. What's the primary commodity in the Old South? Cotton and the world's lust for it. And who is raising cotton? Large planters who own four million people. And so it boils right back. So, yes, it is economics and it's states' rights. The states' rights to decide whether they wanted to have slaves or not. Yes, sir. Could you speak to the Emancipation Proclamation and what its limits were and when true freedom for uh, slaves?
3: I always think true freedom for slaves became law with the passage of the 13th Amendment. Because, again, remember, Lincoln, as president of the United States, could only really proclaim emancipation as a military commander. It was a military type of decision. So he could do it in the occupied South, but he couldn't do it in other parts of the country. So it was limited. So this is where, you know, just as an aside, there's been some groups for years now who want to drag us in. When do the Juneteenth celebrations take place? And I always think, well, it's Juneteenth. I would tend to think June, but then some places it's August, some places it's September. And it's, well, because I know in North Carolina where I just was, It was in um, 1865 in Winston-Salem and uh, so that's one of the things that again I always argue about telling the whole story that's part of the whole story Emancipation Proclamation is announced right after the Battle of Stones River I mean Stones River was pivotal for that announcement but it didn't really affect all of the South until Actually, the war is over and they passed the 13th Amendment. Yeah, it, it, the Civil War had never been fought. How sustainable was the uh, slave and, and that economic, uh, you know, that, that model? You know, that's been something that I've read some new studies on, and it is interesting. Um, uh, that's been one of the debates, that it was starting to die a slow death. But again, when I look at these estate evaluations and, you know, sales, you know, sales of slaves were getting their highest prices in the 1850s. I don't see where that had started to diminish yet in the United States. Now, in Brazil, it finally ends around 1890, if I remember. And some people have said, well, that would have been the case here. But, you know, that's another couple of generations. You know, I I really think that the Civil War was almost, and this is, again, I'm preaching here. This is not a fact. This is one of these, this is a a theory based up. you know, this is a fact based upon my theories as I sometimes kid my students for bringing up in class. But I'll do it now. And that is, I just think it was almost like the price we paid to live up to the Declaration of Independence. We made that decision in the Constitution to compromise on that and to allow it. A lot of people thought that once you stopped importing slaves from Africa in 1807, it would die out. And it didn't die out, it became bigger and more uh, stronger economically. So maybe 1890, I will grant that, because that's what happened in Brazil. But what if it had gone on even longer? I mean, it's just a stain upon what the United States and America should be and could been. And if we do that, are we a leader at the time of World War One? Maybe not. Are we in the same role in World War II? Maybe not. And guys, I just think our role in World War II is so important because without us, it's not so much the Nazis, it's those Russians and the and uh, would we have had a communist Europe so you know, I think things sometimes work out the way they were meant to be. It's not that it was easy and 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 not a lot of difficult choices and a lot of sad things happened but um I'm not one to bash the United States of America. We just make mistakes, we learn from it, we move forward.